Okay. Okay. All right. Objection! Hello, and welcome to Rhythm Encounter, RPG Fans Music Podcast. I'm Hilary Andriff. And I have a distinguished panel of some of our graphic adventure subject matter experts today to discuss a topic near and dear to our hearts, which is the music of graphic adventure games. So uh, I'd like to introduce Jonah Logan. You might know him from Random Encounter. Hello, everyone. I'd like to think of myself as an enthusiast more than an expert, but thank you. (laughs) Fair enough. And also, we have Adam Lures, and forgive me if I'm mispronouncing your name, Adam. Uh, it is actually lures like fishing lures, but ev- ah. everybody says lures, so I don't really care either way. And correct me if I'm wrong, but this is also your first time on one of our podcasts, right? Indeed it is. I am a podcasting newbie, so yeah, very, very excited to be here. Welcome. We're very excited to have you. You've been contributing some great music reviews for quite a while, so it's wonderful to have you. Yeah, it's it's um, it's exciting to have finally finally made the jump. The podcasts are really kind of what got me on board in the first place. I was listening to some RPG fan podcasts and I was just like, man, I want to collaborate with those people. That seems like a cool group. Aw, that's so great. Well, anytime you want to be on random, just drop us a line. Absolutely. Will do. So the format of the show is we're going to just introduce graphic adventures, talk about why we like them, talk about the music, why it's important. Then we're going to launch into blocks of two songs each and we will have a short introduction to the songs and then we will listen to the music and we will come back and discuss. So I had an intro question for both of you because I found out something interesting. Why don't you also introduce yourselves with your favorite musical to perform in and favorite musical to listen to? Because I I learned that you're both into musical theater. Yeah. Okay. Favorite musicals to perform in. Uh, I'm going to pick two because I can. I love Your Good Man, Charlie Brown. I've been in it a few times. Playing Snoopy is awesome because snoopy is the best character yes um agreed. and he has the best song in the show two of the best songs in the show technically supper time's awesome as well and the other show that I, it means the most to me that i was ever in is a it's not as well known but it's a show called danny girl it's by two guys diamond and kuman they're awesome guys brilliant writers uh and it's about two children with cancer trying to figure out why cancer is like why they both have it why it is basically an exploration of death which is it's also very funny and very happy and fun, uh, which you would not expect from a musical about children with cancer. It's a great show. Um, if anyone ever, you know, sees a soundtrack and they're looking for it, I recommend it highly. It's awesome. Um, shows that I'd love to listen to. I'm going to pick three because, again, I can. Tucson Heim, love Assassins, and I love Company. Every single time I listen to both albums, I find something else. I have a new idea. I have a new appreciation for the subject matter. And I adore Jesus Christ Superstar. It's just a, it's just the, it's one of the best rock albums period ever released. And it's, uh, it's, it's a brilliant show as well, at least in my opinion. Good picks. Thank you. Good picks. Well, shoot. So I think my favorite musical to perform in, I'm get, I'm going to list two. Yeah, I'm going to list three. Um, well, the first one is the 25th annual Putnam County Spelling Bee. I love that one because the music's great. It's genuinely funny. There's a little bit of improv there, so the show is different every time. And um, and I just think it portrays the anxieties of being a child in a very realistic way. It's a very funny show, but when it hits, it hits hard. Uh, second is Forever Plaid. And that one just 
just wonderful music. It's a joy to sing, uh, and it just flows so well. And it's it's kind of like 25th Annual Putnam County Spelling Bee in that it's mostly it's a funny show, but there is some genuine pathos. Uh, it doesn't hit nearly as hard as the Spelling Bee, but you know there's there's some real earnestness there, and I, I love it for that. And then the third would be a show that I actually did recently, and it's called Disaster. And uh, basically, it is a parody musical that takes a bunch of, of tropes from 70s disaster movies and pairs it with hit songs from the 70s. Huh. Uh, it's the most ridiculous thing. Um, and other people told me about it and they said, this is so great. And I was like, you sure? Because that sounds kind of dumb. <laughs> but oh man, it is oh, it's so much fun. Um, like every single show that I did, like even if the audience wasn't into it at the start, by the end, they loved it. Uh, so much fun. And then, so my favorite musicals to listen to, I'm going to list two. The first, and I think this will sound like a cop-out if you're familiar with musical theater, but Les Mis. In my mind, it's, I mean, it's, it may have lost a little bit of its, its luster just from familiarity, but at the same time, it's just, it's just a perfect show. I'm, I'm just in awe of Les Mis. It really, they really captured lightning in a bottle with that show. And then the second one is uh, it's, is something I didn't see until recently, but it's called Passing Strange. Ooh. And um, the gist of it is that it's about it's about a young man growing up in the South, trying to find himself. He goes to Europe and wanders around and uh, kind of estranges himself from his family. And the music is like a combination of gospel. It's a combination of soul. It also adds punk rock to the mix. And it's the first musical I've ever been to that had some like legit punk rock. And uh, it was great. I'll never get to perform in it because I, I believe because the entire cast, it's entirely cast with African-American actors. So um, I'll never get to do that show. But man, it's so great and so unique. Um, it really puts forth some some philosophical ideas, uh, some really I don't know, some meaty ideas. Can I give you, I, hey, I know this is Rhythm Encounter where we're talking about music, uh, adventure games. Can I give a quick recommendation to you, Adam? Oh, yes, certainly. Okay, it's a Canadian show. It's a musical by a, uh, a group called Atomic Vaudeville uh, were the ones who spearheaded it. The writers are Brooke Maxwell and Jacob Richmond, and it's called Ride the Cyclone. It's about a teenage chamber choir from Saskatchewan who die in a roller coaster accident, and it's them giving their, it's a little bit like Forever Planned, it's them giving the the concert that they were not allowed to give their final recital. Um, it's dark and funny and touching, and the songs are unbelievably good. It's one of those musicals that everyone should know, but they don't, so it's Ride the Cyclone. Ride the Cyclone. Yeah. Yeah, huh. I'm, I'm definitely gonna check that out. It's right up your alley. Oh. Awesome. Thank you both. I'm really happy that we got to share that. I mean, my credentials are mostly limited to being an audience member for most of my life and singing along to Blame Is badly in the car, you know, in musicals like that. But I have seen some of those shows and I appreciate your, your picks. And thanks for going along with that too, because I don't know, for some reason, tonally, I kind of feel like musical theater and old school adventure games, maybe it's just nostalgia and like the age I was when I went to the theater a lot, but they fit together for me. Oh, yes. I 100% agree. And don't worry about it. <laughs> I have an odd feeling that Adam and I both did some rather off-key singing in the car to Les Mis when we were kids. Oh, yes, <laughs> absolutely. Still do sometimes. Mm. Oh, great. So really quickly, let's 
jump in. Uh, does anyone want to go first and just kind of say why adventure games, why the music's important, why the topic interested them? Yeah, sure. I Adventure games, I mean, there's a reason why I, when I was looking for a site to work with, RPG Fan was the one I, I applied to because it's RPGs, but it's also adventure games. And they're my two favorite genres, specifically point and click adventure games. My intro to it was Maniac Mansion on the NES when I was a kid. But the problem was I was like seven and there was no internet. So I didn't realize that LucasArts was a thing and I couldn't really follow up on it to find out other games. It wasn't until I was a little bit older that I was in Walmart. It might have been Zeller's at the time. And I found a LucasArts adventure pack that had Salmon Max, Indiana Jones, Fate of Atlantis and Day of the Tentacle. And I just devoured them. And from there, you know, started getting game magazines and started to really play every single LucasArts adventure game that I could get my hands on. And something that always attracted me to it was the music, because the music in these games was so important. There wasn't, you know, running and jumping. And it, it was a very it was a very static game with, you know, you're using verbs and trying to figure out puzzles. So if the music is annoying or if the music doesn't work or if the music doesn't fit the scene, it can badly damage the experience. Now, thankfully, our, especially in this particular uh, our picks today, all of these songs fit the games so well and uh, and push the mood and the feel of the game forward in a way that if they weren't there, I don't think that the games would work. So, yeah, that's that's kind of how I feel about music and adventure games. Yeah, I definitely think that's an important one of the important criteria, especially for adventure games is being part of that sort of narrative experience. So how about you, Adam? Well, I um, I think adventure games may be my favorite genre. You know, one thing that I, I, I have a lot of history playing them, I, I, um, one thing that's kind of interesting is that even though they're all single-player games, I think I've had the most fun playing these with other people. Uh, in fact, I think most of my multiplayer gaming experience is uh, adventure games. Um, like 50% adventure games and 50% Super Smash Brothers. <laughs> so the first game that I played was Torin's Passage. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I actually kind of came, kind of came into it in the latter days of the adventure game boom. Um, Torin's Passage, it seems like, you know, people like it. It's not a classic, but people still kind of like it. But that got me hooked. That, um, that was the first time I'd played anything like that. Uh, from there, I played the Monkey Island games several years later and a lot of the Nancy Drew games. A lot. I mean, I think there's like 30 something of them. And my sister and I played almost all of them. Oh, my gosh. That's uh, awesome. So, yeah, I, that was a very formative um, gaming experience for me. And um, one thing I, I will say, though, is that I um Bes with a with a few major exceptions, one of those exceptions will come up in this podcast. I actually never really paid much attention to the music in these games. And it really wasn't until I feel RPGs kind of trained me to listen to the music. You know, from there, I kind of went back and said, well, shoot, maybe I should I should listen to the music from all, all these other games that I really enjoyed growing up, because there's a lot there that I didn't quite, you know, I didn't really quite learn to appreciate yet. And and I'm really glad I did because there's just there's just tons of tons of good material here, and uh, I'm really excited to talk about it. Great, I definitely can relate to that as well. So I'll just I'll just give a tiny bit more background for me as well. So I'm a Sierra girl. My first real point and click game was King's Quest Four, 
And I was super excited that you got to play as Princess Rosella. <laughs> and I just really distinctly remember I was a second grader and we had like sixth grade study buddies in my elementary school. And I just remember being so excited because my study buddy was also playing the game somehow and was able to give me tips, which is great because, you know, I was so much younger than she was. I didn't really know what I was doing in a King's Quest game in second grade. But yeah, so it's always been kind of just a nice, almost collaborative experience for me and immersive. I mean, that's something I've always I've always come back to point and click adventures just to, for a really immersive game experience. I think the music is part of that as well. Although I think I had a tendency to kind of overlook it for a long while as well, because when I was young in that same age range, my sound card didn't always work. You know, computers were rapidly changing. So I don't think I even got to quite fit the music with the moments in the games until much later on when I kind of started revisiting some of them. And then I kind of gained some appreciation as well. So it seems like we have a diverse array of experiences. We've covered like a lot of the bases, LucasArts, Sierra, <laughs> all of that, the mysteries. <laughs> something I've always found interesting about adventure games, and this is something that certainly Rhythm Encounter talks about regularly, is we tend to be fairly, our talk about music and video games tends to be dominated fairly uh, substantially by Japanese composers because RPGs, obviously. And yes, there are some exceptions to that. But primarily, we talk about uh, the big Japanese composers, whereas with adventure games, certainly Sierra LucasArts, these are Americans, or at the, at the very least, Western composers. Uh, and that means that there is a very different sensibility about them that I don't think broke through quite as, broke through quite as loudly as uh, Japanese composers and Japanese RPG soundtracks did. So I am excited to be putting a spotlight on some of these composers who maybe our audience doesn't really know. Yeah. You know, I hadn't considered that, but you are absolutely right. Um, like one thing that I, one thing that I noticed, I noticed in like the difference between Japanese RPGs and Western RPGs is that in general, this is a very broad um, simplification, but generally it seems that um, Japanese RPGs, the music is there to really grab you, to command your attention and, and add lots of drama to the scene. Whereas I think this, the philosophy with Western RPGs, generally speaking, is that you almost don't want to be aware of the music as a separate thing. It kind of does its, it does its, like in general, we tend to favor more subtle soundtracks in Western RPGs. And I think that might generally be true of adventure games as well. I could definitely see that as a contributing factor to why maybe you wouldn't think of those adventure game soundtracks quite as readily as some other video game types like JRPGs. So we are starting old school. And I think actually the uh, first pick is mine. And that is the Magic Meadow from Quest for Glory 1, and I specifically picked a guitar version from the Sierra soundtrack collection because it was played by Siebert. That's his last name as the composer, so I thought that was neat. And then our next pick is a classic from Adam that I'll let him introduce. Uh, yeah, so this is the main theme from Monkey Island by Michael Land. I think one of the, one of the greatest themes in adventure games, possibly one of the greatest video game themes of all time. I, I think this is so great. This is a theme, um, in contrast to what I said earlier, this theme jumped out to me the moment I heard it. It's just absolutely iconic. Yeah, very catchy. And I have to admit, I think that the jump out factor it was actually factor in my pick as well. And I'll go more into that after we listen. So let's go check it out. 
right. So two old school classic adventure game sounds all start in with my main reasons for picking this track from Quest for Glory. One, first of all, it's just really, really pretty. It hit hard when I was playing the game because you, I mean, it's kind of tongue in cheek. If you've played the games, you know, it's a little spoofy, a little satirical, but also kind of heroic. So the soundtrack and the quests and just everything about the world are appropriately kind of off the wall, but also heroic. But then in the middle of everything, in the middle of an area where you normally be fighting enemies, because Quest for the Glory is a little strange in that it's not strictly point and click. There's also some combat. In the middle of this dangerous area, you just, there's a certain screen. If you walk onto it, you're just in this beautiful magical meadow and it's a complete peaceful place that this wondrous mage created. She like travels the world creating these kind of sanctuary spaces. And even with the very old graphics, it was just beautiful. And this music fit it so well. It was just kind of like a relaxing, but still very memorable melody. And that theme kind of carries throughout the series. You keep seeing, like essentially throughout the games, you're following her. This mage keeps coming up across the different games. And you, so you find like multiple locations of hers that are like that. And you kind of get echoes of that theme. So I thought it was cool, kind of like the Monkey Island theme. You know, it's not the opening theme, but it does carry through a long running series. So I'm anxious to hear your thoughts on it uh, as well. I, first of all, I just love your description off the wall, but also heroic. <laughs> um, that, that is just a perfect description of the Quest for Glory series um, and probably King's Quest as well. But, uh, you know, the first thing that I thought when I listened to this is this sounds like it came from the Princess Bride soundtrack. Oh, my gosh. Um, yes. And which so Mark Knopfler of Dire Straits did did that soundtrack and it's and, and it's wonderful. And this like this was, gave me exactly the same feeling. It was just like just so so controlled and so so simple just with the arpeggiation and just this very this very simple melody up top i'm saying simple a lot but it, it really is just it's an elegant piece and i love how it does it does actually add some new elements in the further in you go like after a little mm -hmm. while you do get a little bit of um of chorus and then you get a little bit of synth at the very end but not a lot it's just this it's it's meditative, which you know feels appropriate for the for the setting. Oh, definitely, and and I know exactly the song you're talking about from Princess Bride because I have it <laughs> in my head now. It's that like like the kind of that love theme yes. with that exactly like relaxed, controlled for Wesley and Buttercup. Yep, yeah. that's exactly the theme that I was thinking of too. It's just <laughs> it's yeah, exact same feels. And I just think just that kind of relaxed acoustic guitar was just such a great instrument choice. I agree. One of the things I did with actually pretty much all of the songs we do, I like to listen to the, like, the different versions of them. And certainly when it comes to old school uh, adventure games, there are a number of different versions of the soundtrack, depending on which system they were on and what the sound capabilities were. And I, I listened to the original and it, it does share that same simplistic beauty and quietness and calmness. But this version specifically with the guitar really brings that to the fore. And I agree with you, Adam. I think that the the song has a very subtle build, which is nice because if it was the same thing over and over again, 
it would just, mm -hmm. you know, it'd be nice, it'd be relaxing, but it doesn't feel like it's going anywhere. Whereas in this case, right. it just slowly and subtly adds a little bit more, but never in a way that distracts from the calmness and the uh, restfulness of the piece. Yeah, and, and there's like one moment in there that always gets me because you've got a little bit of the like progression and build in instruments, but also you've got like a slight change in the melody at the same time. And I think there might also be a key change kind of like all rolled together a good way into it that really helps it feel like still relaxed, still controlled, but just a nice build. Uh, this is uh, this is a small diversion from our topic, but uh, and um, but I um, I Googled Mark Siebert and um, my gosh, that guy is a stud. Like he yep. is a good looking dude. Yep. 60 now. I don't think any of the photos that came up were like, this, <laughs> but like he probably still is good looking. Like, man, I was, I, I just felt kind of insecure. <laughs> I, I will admit, like, I, I looked him up too, and I was like, I was not expecting yep. that. I, yep. Me neither. I have not right. looked him up, and let's see what my, uh, <laughs> uh, music. Okay, let's see if I got my, uh, let's see if I got my reaction in place here, and holy crap. Right? <laughs> that is, oh my goodness gracious, that is a, uh, that is a man. Yeah, that is some serious man candy right there. <laughs> oh, oh, well. So yeah, I would probably, I, I would probably swoon a little bit if like I went to a live performance of him, of him <laughs> doing the Magic Meadow. That would, yeah. Oh man. It might not be him. I'm searching it. There's still some other names that came up here because like, based on this, this is, this is someone who does not need to go on a quest for glory because he has already found it with that shirt. <laughs> I, you know, I wasn't sure either, but I, you know, I based on like because I think he like did some albums, mm -hmm. and it's that same face. So yeah, I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure that's him. Neat. <laughs> There's a very interesting aside. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, on a totally different note, <laughs> let's talk about Monkey Island. All right. Well, shoot. You know, it's actually hard for me to talk in like an objective way about this theme. And not just be like, oh, it's good. It's so good. Um, Speaking of man but, uh, candy, Guybrush Street Boys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh, goodness. But I, I love this theme. And actually, I love um, I, I mean, this is definitely this is probably my definitely my favorite piece of music from those soundtracks. But um, I think that Michael Land's scores for Monkey Island um, are just are just excellent all around top to bottom. Uh, and one thing that he does so well is he just creates this really vibrant sense of place. You know, I chose to do the the original opening theme from The Secret of Monkey Island, the first game, uh, because that one, I think it might still be my favorite in the series. And one thing I love about it is that it does still feel a little dangerous. Like the later games kind of got a little a little goofier. They embraced the comedic side more, and I love them. I, I love those games quite a bit. Um, the colors got brighter, but um, the very first one, you know, with that title screen on Melee Island at night, and like the only light is the Watchmen at at the top, and some lights in the the town down below. Right. It's surprisingly yeah. dark. Yeah, like well, like literally dark. The first the first big like I don't know maybe fifty percent of the game takes place at night and you know it actually feels like an adventure and, and it's actually a little spooky like the voodoo lady in the first game um she pops up throughout the series but in that first game she's actually kind of scary 
you know, like LeChuck is actually just a little scary in that one. Actually, and then, well, yeah, LeChuck is LeChuck is actually intimidating in all of his in, in incarnations, I think. But um, I think I it's think fair too. Fair. But I would argue that he does have a, a much. There's a menace to him in the first game that is because he's not oh, yeah. a known threat yet. By the third game, yes, he's a bombastic kind of cartoon character, as everyone in Monkey Island is. But at this point, because of the animation style. There's a very real spookiness about him. Yes, that that's a very good point. By the the first game, you don't really know who LeChuck is. But, you know, by the time you get to Escape of Monkey Island, LeChuck is essentially Monkey Island Bowser, you know? Yeah. <laughs> that's a but good way of putting I, it. So, like, the specific elements of this this tune, I think, the the reggae beat, the use of uh, the, the xylophone, um, later mm-hmm. renditions also used a lot of steel drum. Like, they're just little yep. touchstones here to really give you this, this sense that you're in the Caribbean. And it's just just a wonderful piece. Like, it sets the tone so well. And, and I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. Yeah. And I mean, going back to what we're saying, a lot of this music was limited. So it's, it's really cool to look at the original version and see how they accomplished that at that yes, time. Yes, it's, uh, I mean, I think it's pure magic. But it's also, I imagine the composers of the day it wasn't just a matter of picking the instruments that you wanted. It was a matter of picking the instruments that you wanted and didn't sound like absolute <laughs> in MIDI. <laughs> yep. Yes. And yep. I don't think there's a single instrument in this particular in this particular version that sounds bad. I think using the woodwinds, I think that's a smart choice because they sound good in MIDI in a way that a lot of other instruments just don't. Hmm. Yeah. They're almost identifiable as the instrument rather than boop, 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 boop. Yeah, that's a very good point. It's not just a great theme in video game history because of its place in video game history. It's a catchy song. Oh, yeah. It, like, the second that I... If you were in a subway and you went, bum, 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 there's a good chance that someone on the other end would respond with, bum, 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 bum. It's just a very identifiable uh, melody. And that's a wonderful thing for some of these more long-running adventure game yeah, series. Yeah, that is a really, like, it is kind it has this instant classic quality to it. And it makes me think, so I played Secret of Monkey Island, and I got it in a combo pack, so the second one didn't work. So I've actually played every game except for the second one, which a lot of people say <laughs> oh, no. is the best. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Um, you, you should probably play LeChuck's Revenge. <laughs> I probably should jump on that. But, you know, I basically, so I played Secret of Monkey Island and Curse of Monkey Island, like, I don't know, months apart. Like, there wasn't really much of a gap between them. But when I played the opening of Curse of Monkey Island and that theme came on again, I got goosebumps like I had just waited six years to play this game. It's, I it, yeah, it's just, it's, it's a great theme. <laughs> Pulls you right back yeah, into it. I agree. And I think one of the coolest things about this theme and what they've done with it over the years is how they can repurpose that central theme for the feel of the game. Like, yes, Curse of Monkey Island does use the Monkey Island theme, but it uses it in a very different sense. Whereas, like you said, this game, it builds a sense of mystery and quietness and uh, and really brings people in. In Curse of Monkey Island, it's made into a, a bombastic, exciting kind of... Uh, fanfare sort of thing. Yes. Rousing, kind of like, we're back and we're going to have more Which adventure. suits the uh, feel of that particular game. And I would say the series going forward uh, after mm-hmm. LeChuck 2, that was definitely definitely more of a tone of, um, of high-flying adventure. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason why 
Monkey Island was inspired by Pirates of the Caribbean, and then Pirates of the Caribbean was very and very, very inspired by Monkey Island, which is one of the reasons why I'm a little bit afraid that with Disney owning the property now that we're never going to see another Monkey Island game again. <sighs> why do you have to bring us down? I feel hmm. it's a little bit too close to one of their, uh, one of their favorite IPs. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe that's the sign that it's, it's time to introduce our next block. What do we sure. think? Let's do it. So we are moving ahead chronologically a bit with this one. Interestingly, I have the first one again. So my pick is Atris's Study by Jack Wall from the Mystery Exile soundtrack. Uh, we'll get some good mystery and a new series represented here. And then the other pick is Mine Jonah. is a little, it's a little weird, but it's probably the most identified known song in the game. It's Grim Fandango. But it's not any of the music that you would hear necessarily in the game itself. In 1998, when the game was announced, they released a trailer that was a very, it became one of the most popular gaming trailers of all time. And this is the music that accompanied that trailer. And there are little bits and pieces throughout the game, but the second you hear it, you'll know why I picked it, I think. All right, great. Let's break and go listen.
right. So we are back. I'm ready to talk about Myst and Grim Fandango, which are two pretty different games, but in the same time period. So I'll just start off with a little bit about why I picked this particular song. It was really hard to narrow down a song in the Myst series because there's a lot to pick from, surprisingly. I mean, you don't think of Myst and immediately think of memorable music because I think Myst embodies a lot of what we were talking about earlier with the music as part of the environment. It doesn't overshadow anything. It adds to it, but it doesn't overshadow. It's really neat the way the series just kind of, you'll hear a little musical cue here and there as you're exploring. And it kind of it emphasizes, but it doesn't, it's not super memorable, a lot of it. But I think this track from the third game, which is the middle of the series, it kind of like exemplifies the series' sense of place because it's a, the music that plays in Idris's study and books are obviously very, very central to Mist. And I think the music in the series kind of undergoes a big transition. It's like way more minimalist in Mist and Riven and then it gets a lot more like bombastic and adventurous in the last two games. And this, I think, is just like that perfect bridge. And it also, it just has this wonderful like lush, mysterious sound. It's a bit lusher than the earlier games, so I just, I like it a lot. I find it interesting that when I heard the song, the first thing that occurred to me is that the very beginning of it reminded me quite a bit of the beginning of the Monkey Island theme, but then took it in a very different direction. There was something about the, the very beginning of this song that just reminded me a little bit of the, so of the beginning of Monkey Island. I don't know why. I think it was trying to create the same sense of mystery and exploration that Monkey Island had, but then it took it in a very different direction because instead of exploring an island, of course, you're exploring this uh, essentially study, basically somebody's office. And this music plays for a long time. Like it opens the game, it's over the menu, if I recall, and then it goes into like the entire time that you're in uh, his study until the book gets stolen, right? Mm -hmm. So that's all, that's about... I think that's right. Yeah, that's about 15 to 20 minutes of playtime if you actually take your time to explore, which means that it's absolutely vital that this song does not get irritating. Mm. And it does not. It, uh, I, I think it's a, a wonderful way to uh, introduce the game. And I like how there are certain, not even instruments, like there's a wind chime kind of feel mm -hmm. throughout it that makes it feel like someone's home. Ooh. Yeah. Which is great because you're exactly correct there. I'm glad you pointed that out because at the, in this particular game, it's it's all about home. Atris, the character that you've known since Mist, he and his family have a new home and that's where you start off the game. But then the antagonist has been just suddenly separated from his home and everything he knows. And that has quite an effect on him. If you've played the game, you know. So, Yeah. It's that's a great little musical cue that kind of ties into the theme of the game. I think uh, I think it's interesting that you both kind of mentioned the the sense of place that it gives because that was the first impression that I got. Also, it was interesting listening to this track. Just it suddenly reminded me what a weird setting the Mist series has. Yep. What a what a novel setting. This kind of like this like island steampunk fantasy series like it's it's really actually a very exotic setting and because it's just been such, it's a very familiar series I'd never I hadn't really considered that yeah and I think that the the choice of instrumentation really really brings that home it just there's a feeling of antiquity to it that I I just really like yeah and that's that's one of my favorite things about the series as a whole is you feel like you're discovering something 
ancient and powerful with this art of writing that they they talk about. Yeah, sense of place tends to be what I think of when I think of the Mist series. Mm-hmm. I mean, up until that point, nothing had ever been done like it before, and it's certainly not like it's not cartoony. It's not funny. It's not like it's not like a LucasArts uh, adventure game or a Sierra adventure game. They just drop you in this island, and they're kind of like, "All right, figure it out." And because of that sense of place is what most people feel when they mm-hmm. when they think about the Mist series. And I think that the music in this game, from what I've heard, carries that idea forward uh, very well. Yeah, I think the Mist games kind of bear more of a resemblance to the Infocom text adventures that came before rather than to their contemporaries. Yeah, it's a damn close to a text adventure game. But I, I would also say that the mood of the Mist series, though, is, is completely its own thing. There were a lot of imitators afterwards. But... Oh boy, were there. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's just really cool to see how the music handles the, the that sense of place, too, because the series, you have Mist Island, which is a very concrete place, but throughout the series, you have kind of this limitless potential of place through the books. So like, it's interesting how they kind of use that to ground you. Mm -hmm. See, I might argue even that the music of Myst is more important than we give it credit to, historically speaking, because Myst is known as one of the very first, uh, especially one of the very first good multimedia games. Mm -hmm. Like it had graphics and like pre-rendered areas like we had never seen up to that point. It had motion video, it had audio, it had these tracks that did not sound like boop, 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 like it actually had music. Right. And because of that, I think it was a major stepping stone towards everything else that came after it, and not just in terms of its imitators, but in terms of where the the cinematic uh, language we use today in most video games and certainly in most adventure games. Right. And technologically speaking, like it pushed the envelope for sure of what was capable at the time. Almost didn't work. <laughs> yeah. It had acting, live acting really early on too, and did some of that kind of like FMV live actor type stuff well. It wasn't like the full, mo- like in in Mist 3, if I, you know, there are like, it's full motion video, it's characters walking around. Mm-hmm. I believe they were very small videos, like you'd open a book and there'd be like a little video window, but it was still there. I think I read somewhere too that the uh, the two brothers in Mist were actually the the two brothers that created the the game. Yes, yes, you are correct. They they did the acting, and actually, Robin did the music. Yes, he did the music for uh, for the first two games. He did. Talented bunch. When you when you think about the impact that those games have had, and just like how much those two did themselves, it's like it's mind blowing. I think I re- read an interview a while back, and I don't. I think it was Rand. It was an interview with Rand. The uh, interviewer asked him, like, were you, like, stressed about trying to fit all of this on one disc? Because they had to jump through some hoops to get this, get missed onto a disc. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I think, I think he said, like, we really had no, like, we had no context for this. Like, we just, we were just making our game and we we didn't really understand how stressed we should have been (laughs) at that time. It's amazing how much of gaming history boils down to people getting very, very lucky that things work. that is a true. How much? How much history in general? Mm. Well, let's move on to I think an equally innovative game, Grim Fandango. Speaking of things that almost don't work, <laughs> <laughs> I I adore Grim Fandango. Like I said, like in the early days after I got my hands on like some of the early LucasArts adventure games, and the internet was just starting to come out, and I started doing research, and then Grim Fandango showed up, and it looked like nothing else like it was such a massive leap over curse of monkey island 
Curse of Monkey Island looked like a live-action cartoon, but this was clearly a next-gen game. And as a next-gen game, it, it did a number of things uh, wrong, one of which being, some would argue, tank controls. They attempted to fix that with the re-release uh, that happened a few years ago where they introduced a verb wheel, but it kind of worked and kind of didn't because, I mean, the game, the game's navigation works with tank controls. You, you kind of have to be able to go everywhere towards the camera, away from the camera, so it doesn't quite work because there's no fixed perspective. But anyway, sorry, I'm, I'm getting into my own little pet peeves about Grim Fandango. The music. The music in Grim Fandango is unbelievably good. Um, right across the board, I don't think there's a single track in the entire game that does not beautifully illustrate sense of place, the feel of what's happening to the characters. There are amazing character themes, everything from the bone wagon kind of surfer type theme to Manny Ameche's uh, guitar. It, it's just beautiful. But for me, it's all about this opening. And the reason why is because it was, like I said, the first thing I saw was the trailer, and it's the first thing that many people saw. Grim Fandango is, in terms of its style, its music, even some of its setting, it's a pastiche of 1930s and 40s, primarily Warner Brothers movies, a lot of which, you know, Humphrey Bogart films. Uh, so mm -hmm. Casablanca obviously is a big influence, like the entire second chapter is a giant reference to Casablanca. Maltese Falcon, Big Sleep, and... For all of these films, when, you know, after you saw the, the Warner Brothers logo come up, you'd be greeted by this big fanfare and like there's the opening credits where like all the actors and stuff. And that's essentially what this trailer is. It's essentially the it's it's the opening credits of this game in a way. It hypes everyone up. It gives you a sense of like some of the big moments. It introduces you to many of the characters. It brings you through some of the main themes of the game musically. It's just the it's so damn good. Now, this version specifically is the remastered version, the original one, which is also excellent, but does use some sampling and things like that. Whereas this version was recorded with a live orchestra and you can really feel the difference. I think that it's a perfect piece of pastiche. I think that if you took this entire theme and you put it in front of a, a trailer for a 1930s or 40s film, or you put it in front of, right after the Warner Brothers logo comes up, unless you were really familiar with that movie, you almost would not be able to tell that it was not meant for that movie because it's so good and it creates such a sense of what the game wants to be and what I think the game accomplishes. Yeah, it's funny. I think we were we were talking a little bit about Grim Fandango uh, uh, among staff recently and one of our colleagues mentioned that, you know, chapter two is where Grim Fandango really is kind of like the film noir adventure. I think this theme fits that, just shows the very best of what Grim Fandango has to offer, like you would want your trailer music at the beginning of the movie to be. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's it's a tale of crime and corruption in the land of the dead. And when you say that, this is the kind of theme that starts playing in my head. Yeah, it's a little bit dangerous. It's a little bit mysterious. Uh, so I have a um, I have a confession to make. I have not played Grim Fandango. I'm a so I I I, I realize that might make me an adventure game fan poser. Um, no, I have but, I have not played uh, like any classic Sierra adventure game. Actually, yeah, I I've, 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 like I don't think I've played I've played King's Quest Seven. Everybody has their blind spots. Yeah, yeah we, we were just saying that before recording. Like it's it's you think that adventure games are way more insular as a genre than they actually are. Like it's easy to miss something. Yeah, there's a lot more there than than you might think. So I'll say that I had no context for this track. But this track plays it by itself. It paints such a great picture. 
Like basically, my assumption was that this was the opening track of the game. That the the opening bombastic part was maybe like a sweep over the the city of the dead, and then as it went, as it kind of like you know got to the bassoon part for the second half, the camera would like zoom in, and you just see it, and it's a shot of the main character just doing day to day stuff in his office. <laughs> Manny in the office with the bassoon. Yeah, I like it. It's a and, and by the way, <laughs> that almost like that almost eclipsed everything. I just I love it. I love it when tracks showcase. The low reed instruments. Yes, me too. And I've got to say that actually, like, if I had to pick an instrument to fit Manny Calavera's office personality, it would definitely be a bassoon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, do you see the trailer? I, um, well, you know, I probably have seen the tra- I, trailer like a, a long time ago. I mean, I know that it's, we're, I know we're recording, but we can't, here, check it out for a sec, just to, I, I know that these pieces are supposed to be separate from the game, and they are. But there's something about this game, this specifically, that just, I mean, you'll, you'll see. All right. You'll also be able to hear the uh, lo-fi uh, music. It's, it's such a perfect encapsulation of everything that the game is, and the music plays such an important part of that. I think one of the reasons why Grim Fandango was as successful a cult hit as it was, was because of that trailer. That's an important point to bring up. Something like that could really hmm. help push a title along, especially if the music is as good as this was. I would really love to dive into that. Like, why? Because I haven't played it, so maybe it would be fun to just, like, dive into this adventure game classic and really try and pick apart why it's, you know, why it's so well-loved even to this day. I've, I've heard that the the soundtrack as a whole is really, it's just beloved. I think it's one of the only, from what I've read, it's one of the only video game sound, jazz video game soundtracks that's actually appreciated by jazz fans. Ah, interesting. Yeah, it doesn't feel like, like it's, you know, okay, we need some music that sounds like jazz. It's genuinely, yeah, it's jazz. Mm-hmm. Hey, Adam, look, if you want to, if you want to play Grim Fandango and come on a random encounter, I would love to talk to you about Grim Fandango. <laughs> I understand that Solosi, there's already been an episode of Grim Fandango for uh, Retro Encounter. Yes, so it, it was, was a game, game journal, journal. And it was yeah. years ago. So, hey, you want to come on and talk about Grim Fandango? You are welcome. <laughs> I, I might take you up on that. That sounds like that sounds like a good time. So the, the score for Grim Fandango was uh, composed by Peter McConnell. Yes. I think he's the sole composer on this one. But he contributed... With um, he contributed on a lot of Lucas Arts games, yes, including he did. all the Monkey Island. Well, no, not all the Monkey Island games. Not the first one. Yeah, the second, the third, the second and the third, and I think the fourth. Yeah, he did LeChuck's Revenge. He did Curse of Monkey Island, and I think he did Escape as well. And he consulted on Tales of Monkey Island. And certainly, he probably played a large role in the remasters of the first two games. In many ways, we can thank him for all of the great music in the entire Lucas Arts. Uh, Library because he was one of the, along with Michael Land, he was one of the two guys who designed uh, the iMuse system, which is what was used as the composing tool for all future LucasArts adventure games. Allegedly, Michael Land had such a terrible time composing, uh, not composing, programming the music for Monkey Island, uh, Secret of Monkey Island, that he decided that there needed to be a new program put into place, and the two of them got together and uh, they created the iMuse system. Wow. Yeah, and I I think I heard somewhere that um, they were, it was actually a pretty innovative, sophisticated. It was a very sophisticated system. I think in, I've heard that in LeChuck's Revenge, it will switch to different versions of the the track depending on where Guybrush goes. Yeah. And and most games do this by just kind of like shifting to a different track. But this one, I guess, 
like even in the remake, they couldn't completely recreate that system. They just they just had it shift from one track to another instead of like instead of just changing the track as it was running. And if you think about RPGs as a whole, like that that predates a lot of those kinds of changes and mm-hmm. a lot of that musical sophistication and other RPGs. So that's that's really neat. Yeah, in fact, uh, the system, the IMU system that was used in uh, LeChuck's Revenge reminds me quite a bit of the uh, how they handle music in. Octopath Traveler, oh, where yeah, where music will—it's not just a matter of like the th- the themes will play into it, especially going into a boss battle. Like the music just kind of builds and builds and builds as you're playing, and then it will seamlessly move into a boss battle without you even really noticing it. Did, did you watch that video? There's a video on YouTube that like really dives into that. Yeah. Uh, um, oh gosh, what's his name? Uh, video game fanfare. Yes. We're gonna have to put some links to this stuff in the show notes. I mentioned stuff on random before. I don't think I've mentioned it on here before. Uh, yeah, game score fanfare. It's a. I actually, my dad, he's um, he's a music lover, but he doesn't he doesn't really care about video game music. But I actually sh- I showed him that video because we were just kind of sharing music that we like, and and so I was like, here, this is something that I thought was kind of cool, and he really enjoyed it. Just the way the way that guy dives into the music and picks it apart, like his musicianship is great. Really great video. So it, it, in many ways, it reminds me a little bit of how Octopath Traveler handles its music. But yeah, it, you're right. It's 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 seamless. You walk into a building, the music changes very slowly, almost like you barely even hear it until you're listening to essentially a different song. And that's incredible if you think of the dates of release of those two games. That's really cool. Yeah. So I think the next song is also going to be Jono and then Adam. Uh, so yeah, mine my next song is a little bit of a cheat. Ace Attorney, Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney, uh, are one of are one of my favorite game series. Uh, I have a, I have a few uh, reviews of them on the site, including one I shouldn't, where I reviewed the the fan translation of the Great Ace Attorney. But in this particular case, it, the 15th anniversary concert came out, and it had a really great medley of all of the court themes from the first three games. Uh, in a nice tight package. There was one There was one on the 10th anniversary, I think, but I think it was like 15 minutes, whereas this is just a good eight minutes. It gives you court begins, it gives you cross-examination, and it gives you pursuit. It gives you the three different movements of the courtroom for all three games, and it does it in a really, really cool way. So yeah, that's what I picked. Oh, and there's a there's a there's a number of different composers in in this, and I am atrociously bad at pronouncing Japanese names, so I apologize, but uh, uh, Masakazu Sugimori... Uh, Akima Kimura uh, did the music for uh, the first two, and then in the third game, Noe Yuki Adawa, help me out here. I think it's uh, Iwadare. It's Iwadare, which I should know because he also wrote all the music from the Lunar series, which our site has some very deep ties to. Oh, <laughs> we sure do. Yes. Uh, and actually, not to put too much of a plug, but I've been listening to a lot of his music recently because I'm reviewing the Wayo Records re-releases of Grandia music. Ooh, cool! Actually, I listen. I listened to those for the first time for our um, our best of 2020, and uh, <laughs> I was like, "What? What have I been missing?" Yeah, right. This is this is good stuff because I actually haven't heard a lot of Iwadare, even though he's very he he's very well loved. Yeah, and it, it's funny. I got that exact same sense from it. it. I think it's such a great packet. I'm so glad the Grandia soundtrack got that treatment. Well, uh, my pick for this last block was Cruisin' from Sam and Max Save the World, also known as Sam and Max Season 1. This was a um, this was a Telltale game from the early phase in their career 
where they were doing mostly traditional adventure games uh, before the breakout success of The Walking Dead. This is by Jared Emerson. It was composed by Jared Emerson Johnson, who's basically basically was their main music guy for their entire from the beginning all the way to the end. Uh, And he uh, he has done so much great, great stuff for Telltale Games. But I I have a special place in my heart for his uh, the music in Sam and Max. Right. Let's have a listen and we'll be back soon.
So let's talk Ace Attorney and Sam and Max. We've got, that's like, I love how we're ending on a kind of high energy note. Yeah, I could talk about Ace Attorney. And actually, I could probably talk about Sam and Max forever, too. I could talk about this orchestral suite forever because it's really neat what they did. Hey, do you happen to know, did uh, Iwadare arrange this? I do not know the answer to that question. I, I think that I'm Iwadare loves to arrange his he loves to arrange his stuff. Yes. So it wouldn't surprise me because these are good. Like, I feel like there they're kind of two little miracles here. Um, like, first, it's a miracle that the original um, Phoenix Wright games sounded as good as they did because I think in Japan they came out first on the Game Boy Advance. And it's hard to make music sound good on the Game Boy Advance. Yes, especially when you're dealing with music with this level of grandness, I guess you could say. Like, it really does demand an orchestra, but they pulled it off with the original games. Yeah, I think the, the music, yeah, the, the, that music is so great. I love the music of the um, Ace Attorney games. And um, and then to take something that really, to me, is very video gamey, video game music, mm-hmm. and translate it this well to orchestra. Yeah, that instrumentation is just seamless it's so good yeah what's cool about it is there's a number there's there are several uh orchestral versions of this tune and each one takes a slightly different a slightly different tact but this one is i think my favorite one of the reasons why i love it i mean one of the reasons why i love ace attorney music in general is because regardless of who the composer is or what game it is it does have a very set there are there are different movements of the courtroom. There's there's always court begins. There's always cross examination, and there's always pursuit. And then in brackets, whatever the the word that summarizes the pursuit in that game is. And that goes for uh, all of the latest games. It goes for the Ace Attorney investigations. But what's cool about it is how different composers interpret those uh, those movements. And you know, get them. You know, they all, they also they they all serve the same purpose, but what they can do with them and how they can each one communicates a certain feel of that game. And I that's one of the reasons I love this little uh, this little uh, medley of them because you can really hear the three different games and the three different feels for each one of the game. Yeah, def- and and the way the way they label it is kind of cool too. I, I was looking through and they are labeled as different musical movements with the you know, descriptors that you would see in an orchestral score. I love that. Yeah. The pursuits are like typically a faster type of description as opposed to the others. And yeah, it's it's just very traditional orchestra. It's really cool to see. When I was going through this uh, to make some notes about it, I I was going through each one. The very first, I guess the very first game, it starts with Court Begins 2002, then the cross-examination and then Pursuit Cornered. And in the very first game, because it's, you know, our first introduction to Phoenix Wright and it's his first time in the courtroom, this version of Court Begins, it's very, very grand. Like, it's the kind of thing that you'd see, like, when you walk into a massive, old, beautiful building, like a like a courtroom building full of history and everything, and you're feeling like you're part of it, and you can hear that in this version of Court Begins. It's, a, it's one of the more thoughtful versions of cross-examination and probably one of the best known because it's the original, but also it's very, you're going through it and it's it's measured and you're weighing the evidence. And then the first pursuit is, it's still one of the best. It build and it beautifully builds up to the climax, which is in my opinion, the moment where someone would scream objection, the do 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 objection, dun dun dun, on that moment. So that's what I feel like for the first game. And then the second game, which some people consider to be the weakest in the series, I think the music is still quite exceptional in it. There are, there's a different 
I guess, feel to the same things. Like this version of Corp Begins, Corp Begins 2003, is it three, I think? It has a similar grand feel, but there's an almost, uh, there's a foreboding air under it this time. Like there's something wrong. Yes. Yeah. And then the same with cross-examination, uh, which it's, it's much quieter than the first one. It's much more introspective. It's not quite as working out the working out what's going on. It's, it's very quiet. And then this version of Pursuit question comes out of absolutely nowhere. It's just, it, you know, the bump, 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 bump. It comes out of nowhere. There's no build to it. It just hits you. And all three very parts, all three parts of this court suite for me feel very disconnected to each other in a way that the other others don't. Mm -hmm. And lastly, this is my final thought on then we can talk about it. Um, the third game is actually, it, it might be one of my favorite games in the series. And because it has a different composer, obviously, it has a very different feel for the court themes. Like, for example, this version of Corp Begins 2004, there's almost an air of melancholy and tragedy behind it. The da 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 da. It, it's very, mm -hmm. it, it, there's, it's, it's, it's sad in a way. This cross-examination, it's, again, it's understated, but it also has a drive through it that's pushing towards pursuit in a way that the other ones don't. It, it, there's there's a line that's going towards some kind of conclusion. Right, there's, it's kind of tension almost. Yeah, exactly. And then this version of pursuit by far is the most heroic of all of the pursuit themes. It's triumphant. It, there's, it's like borderline adventurous uh, in a way. <laughs> I did it. I did it, exactly. <laughs> so I think it's really cool that using the same three movements with almost the same very similar pieces of music, how they accomplish three very different things with the games. Yeah, and I think it's really cool how the last one, the cross-examination section, is broken up into a moderato and then an allegro. Oh, wait, no, that's 2007. Sorry, I'm looking ahead. 2004 is just moderato, but... It does build. Yeah, I mean, if you wanted to move ahead and you wanted to move into some of the other games, you'd be able to. You'd, you'd be. We'd be able to talk about this forever. Like it's. It's. It's such a. It's such a cool convention of the series that it has all of these repeated, not themes, but like almost just names of songs, and then the composer gets to do whatever they want with that name of song and what that is supposed to. The role that song is supposed to play mm -hmm. in the game itself. I, I love that. I think it's such a cool idea. Yeah, it's a framework. And it just, it really kind of works for classic orchestra. And I, I, I think that the, the music for the Ace Attorney series is just so interesting, too, because, um, you know, it, it walks hand in hand with the general presentation. Like, these are, um, these are court cases, but the way they're presented with the quick camera angles and the sound effects and the flashy backgrounds, <laughs> like, it, it feels like, it feels like a shonen battle anime. Mm -hmm. um, court battles. Yeah, complete with, like, the whoosha, shing! sounds and um and i think the music also again this is it's a courtroom but it sounds like um especially on the the cornered tunes like it sounds like you're in a jrpg boss battle mm, yeah and um and it kind of feels like it too like i think i think one of my favorite parts of those games um i think the part the when i this, this was when i realized that i loved these games was when i was um playing the first one the second case it's the first one where um where Edgeworth makes an appearance. Oh, Edgeworth. <laughs> and like near the end of that case where like everything you say, he's like, objection! Everything you try and hit the, you know, hit the culprit with, he he like tries to head you off. It's And that music is playing and oh, oh, so good. Like no other games make standing around and talking so exciting. Actually, you make a very good point with that. That kind of brings us full circle back to our like JRPG 
versus kind of standard graphic adventure because this this brings some JRPG flair. It does, and I think part of the reason why is, like you said, it's a battle. It's a courtroom battle, mm -hmm. and it tends to be a little bit more, I guess, cerebral than attack with sword. But it is still a battle back and forth, whereas almost every other song that we've talked about today has to do with feel, trying to find a sense of place. Yes. Whereas this has to do with setting the, it has to do with the action of the scene. Yeah, I think, um, I think one thing that, um, I suppose one common, uh, it's not necessarily criticism, well, one common complaint I have about adventure games is that they sometimes feel very sedate. Like, you know you're never in any danger. You know, you're just kind of like, just kind of walking around and solving these puzzles, and there's generally not really like a sense of peril mm -hmm. uh, or urgency. Uh, but the Ace Attorney games, they bring that. They, uh, boy, they really get you invested in the drama of the moment. And, the stakes, yeah. Oh, mm, yes. Yeah. In, your, in a standard point-and-click adventure, it's like the the peril is almost something you're investigating too. Because I mean, how many times have we all like tried to find the interesting ways to die or get a game over? Like, mm. <laughs> this isn't—I don't think this is necessarily a weakness of the Ace Attorney games, but that sense of danger that you're talking about is one of the reasons why I am a favor of constantly bringing forward new protagonists for the game. Whereas in the very first game, every case is live or die. You have this rival and you don't really know what you're doing as a lawyer, you're really thrown into the deep end every single time. Whereas by the end of it, Phoenix Wright is very experienced. There's less of a sense of every single turn is a trap and he's falling into them and he's pulling himself out. Turnabout. There, there, it feels like there are less turnabouts as the series goes on for Phoenix Wright. Whereas for new protagonists like Apollo, it, it, it revitalizes that sense of danger and, and stakes. I think the game that really, like I, I mentioned that I reviewed The Great Ace Attorney a while back, and in those games, you are playing a Japanese man in England in the 19th century. So you're not just facing inexperience, you're also dealing with an insane amount of racism that's towards you, and oh. everybody is against you. Like, not just the prosecutor, but the witnesses and the judge and the system and everything. So everything feels like you're hanging on by the edge of your fingers. And again, these same types of themes play in beautifully at that point, which creates a real sense of danger and, and a battle and fighting. So, yeah, I think that these games do some interesting things with music. They certainly do. And mechanically, I think that they, you know, because they're just kind of divorced from this, this established Western tradition of adventure games, it's kind of refreshing to play something that's definitely an adventure game, but also feels very different. Mm -hmm. I really enjoy um, inventory puzzles, but, you know, it was also kind of fun to play a game that really feels in a way more grounded like you're not just like walking around and like picking things up and then and then finding contrived ways to use them it's a game where you move you progress by actually kind of investigating and mm -hmm. interviewing suspects and then like picking their story apart in court uh it, it it's it feels funny to say this about you know the ace attorney games the you know the games that give you like you know, a psychic attorney and, you know, a waiter who like brings his tray into the courtroom and all those goofy things. Right. But they, they actually feel grounded in a sense that uh, that feels different. Yeah, the world of Ace Attorney makes sense within its own context. Yes. Very similar to Alice in Wonderland makes complete sense. As long as you are in the world of Alice in Wonderland, you can create your own rules. The second you break any of your own rules though, that's the point where the audience is gonna go, wait a second. Suspension of disbelief works so long as you continue to suspend the belief, but if you break your own rules, then it's going to be broken. And Ace Attorney really hasn't broken its own rules. I mean, 
There's the classic eat your hamburgers Apollo, but I buy it that in this particular <laughs> weird version of the United States, it's uh, Asian culture has uh, become such a significant part of modern day life. There's hamburgers and there's noodle stands and it's it's and, you know, there's this village full of psychics and it, it, it makes sense. Well, and that's completely different from the flavor of suspension of disbelief that you would have to have, like, for example, in an old Sierra game where you, of course I needed that item to solve that puzzle. Of course the moldy cheese is what you need to throw in the <laughs> wand machine to like have magic. Of course you need to save the pie for the Yeti. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Why would you eat the pie? Graham doesn't need food. You know, and I, I, I apologize because this isn't about the music either, but one thing that I think is also very special about the Ace Attorney games is that they can bounce back and forth hard between wacky comedy and just serious drama, even within the context of this surreal world. And it's one of those things, like, every time they pull it off, I'm like, this shouldn't work, but it does. Like, the, the circus case in the second game, you know, in some ways, I think the, the second game is pretty dark, now that I think about it, but... Like, ultimately, if I remember correctly, nobody tried to kill anybody. Like, I think the, the girl just made a mistake, and that's what got the guy killed. And, like, that was the that was the big reveal. Like, that's... Ooh! Ooh! Oof, yeah. Like, that hits you. If you haven't played Ace Attorney, you probably should. Just saying. Yeah. <laughs> it's available on literally everything nowadays, but if you really want the best version, get the Switch one. So, with that, um, are we ready to cruise along into our finale. Ooh, nice segue. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, so cruising. Uh, I just there there are actually a lot of really interesting tracks in um, in Sam and Max season one. Cruising, I, I just I just love it, and I and for me it just kind of encapsulates everything that I love about that that soundtrack. It actually shares uh, a lot in common with Grim Fandango. I think it kind of has it's got a little noir in its DNA. It's got definitely got a lot of jazz, big band sound, but it's like cranked up to 11. There's this punk energy to it that just like it there, there's like there's no restraint. It just throws it all at you at, at high speed and, and I I love that. I um I do I do have a soft spot for really like high energy, high impact, grab you by the collar soundtracks. Yeah, Jared Emerson Johnson's work on Sam and Max. I, I think is some is he's done a lot of really good stuff for Telltale, but I think this is the like the most joyful music in their catalog. It just just oozes fun and creativity and, and just joy. Yeah, it's it's funny because the song kind of made me think of like the combination of Sam and, and Max, Ooh. like kind of the noir jazz influences are are you know Sam, and then like the high energy is Max. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it, it definitely, it really does fit with, you know, this, it's, it's like half noir detective and half anarchic violence. Which is a good way of explaining that duo. Yep. That's, that's Maybe. the duo and that's this <laughs> track. And uh, it plays when you decide to get in your car and like pull people over for made up offenses. Yeah. like And you can like shoot their taillights out and, and it's, it's, uh, it's really crazy. It. In the first episode, you actually get into a car chase later on with the three um, antagonists of that episode. And um, the three antagonists are washed up former child stars who have been hypnotized by the, an evil cult leader. So if that sounds interesting to you, download this game. It's great. Um, 
And so this, so when you chase them when, and they're trying to get away, this track becomes the instrumental under their theme song. And it's just, it's just so, it's so great. It's wow. Yeah, it's um. Yeah, if you want to check that out, sometimes the sometime the uh, the theme song version is called "More Than Jerks" because they're the they're the soda poppers or because soda jerks. Oh my gosh, that's clever. Yeah, I think that it perfectly captures the feeling of the original intro of Sam and Max hit the road without actually being that track. Yeah, it takes it to a brand new place, but it still feels very similar to that uh, 1970s, 80s cop show-esque. Mm-hmm. Especially there's a, I feel there's a wah-wah pedal under there that gives it a bit of a funky feel that's it's similar to, you know, it, it's Sam and Max in many ways goes back to those days of those two cops. Like every week there's a new case, especially in this episodic yeah. uh, release formula. Yeah, in many ways, I think that was actually the perfect formula for a Sam and Max game. Well, I mean, Sam and Max saved the world. It, this is a... This is one of those games that's literally miraculous that even exists. Oh, yes. I don't know if listeners uh, who are more RPG fans know this, but Sam and Max Freelance Police was the sequel to Sam and Max Hit the Road, which was the LucasArts classic LucasArts adventure game. It was going to be a sequel. Um, It was going to be the follow-up to Escape from Monkey Island. And then due to at once the game was almost completed, apparently, you know, lots of footage was out there. It was playable, apparently. the creators, you know, LucasArts people did an amazing job with it, and LucasArts canceled it because they felt the adventure game market was dead, and in their defense, kind of was at that point in history. But they did cancel a very uh, a game that everyone really, really wanted, um, and the developers said, "Kind of screw you," and then they went off and created the original iteration of Telltale Games, and then from there they got the rights to create their own Sam and Max game from Steve Purcell and uh, they they created it and this is Sam and Max Save the World is not Sam and Max Freelance Police but it reuses a lot of the same DNA and the fact that it exists at all is again miraculous and the amount of care and love that's put into these games especially considering it's early Telltale is uh, very obvious yeah I um I actually have a I have a soft spot for the for their early games I've I've played I've played games from the full range of Telltale's career and I think that I, I think that as they went on uh, especially by the time you get to um, uh, uh, back to the future they did a back to the future game oh I know they oh, they right. did they really found a way to kind of, it was classic adventure gaming stuff but they really built some more narrative and a more cinematic flow into it and I I, I think that um, I, I think that The Walking Dead is good, and I, I do enjoy their later games. But I think they kind of left they left something behind when they when they decided to kind of drop all of the um, the adventure game uh, mechanics. I agree. I think that they that was at the heart of the studio, um, and I feel like instead of evolving that, which they did throughout the throughout the Sam and Max three seasons. Uh, I think they evolved it beautifully. Season two is my personal favorite, but they, they continued that with season three. They were evolving it. They were bringing it to new places. They were incorporating new ideas. And then when they started getting gigantic licenses like Back to the Future and Jurassic Park, especially Jurassic Park, they kind of were like, oh, this is working. Let's pivot. And then they left a lot of the what made them 
beloved from adventure game fans uh, in the past. And that I, I don't know if that contributed to their downfall, but I kind of think it may have. Yeah, it's really interesting to think about and speculate on their evolution. And adventure games have never, I mean, I adore, it's funny that we're at the very end here. I adore adventure games, obviously. They're still one of my favorite genre, and it's certainly something that we cover uh, at RPG. Like I just, I reviewed uh, Encodia a few weeks ago. So, I mean, I love covering adventure games when they come out and they're, they're you know, they have a big enough profile uh, that they manage to break through. But it's still a fairly niche genre. And I feel like Telltale, instead of embracing that, they decided to go for a growth model on a genre that not since LucasArts in the 1990s has really been able to create a business model on. And it just didn't work which is very sad. Uh. I do feel like they did kind of have a revival and um, and now we're, I, I do believe we're on the tail end of that. You know, we're in another adventure game slump um, where it's, it's not like they're not making them at all, but um, for a while there were definitely more of them. Yeah, I don't think that adventure games are going anywhere like they did in the late 90s where it became no. primarily the realm of developers in Europe where they still love adventure games. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But no, it, it just, I mean, adventure... It would be fun to do a podcast, and I don't know if retro or random is the appropriate place for this, just talking about adventure games in different cultures and the way that they have developed. Like Japanese adventure games are certainly, and we certainly cover a lot of them, but it sort of moved into the visual novel area of adventure games, whereas in the West, it's still point and click adventure game. It'd be interesting to examine that and why they're popular in different regions of the world. Yeah, right. And the history of their popularity. I mean, that's a whole topic on its own. Yeah, I think the differences, the East and West differences with adventure games, I think are pretty fascinating. And, and, you know, I think, I also think that adventure games, like one thing that I love about adventure games as a whole is I think they are the most narratively flexible genre of game, possibly even outdoing RPGs in that regard. Yeah. Cause you can put them anywhere. Yeah. Um, although I, I think that, you know, with, um, Disco Elysium, Disco Elysium and Fallen London, like they really, they really take RPGs. Those are two games that take RPGs in very different directions um, where you still got stats and it's, you know, it's the mechanics are very familiar to RPGs, but the the setting and what you're actually doing with your character is different. But for the most part, I would I would say that really adventure games bear the strongest. They share the most DNA with other uh, traditional storytelling media. Uh-huh. And actually, I, I have something that Tim Schafer said that I absolutely, absolutely love and I think applies here and to adventure games. It's just that sense of possibility, that sense of limitless possibility is what you want. And by the way, if you're looking for adventure games, although it's dried up slightly, there are there's still no shortage of brilliant games that are coming like Wadjet Eye Games, obviously, uh, releases tons of stuff. And those developers that that started got their start in the adventure gaming studio and then and then started developing that into like full-fledged adventure games, which in my mind rival the golden age of uh, Sierra and some LucasArts too, although it's a little bit more on the Sierra side. Another studio that is still churning out games, although it's been a little while since the last one is um, Pendulo Studios. They're a Spanish developer. They created the Runaway series, which is kind of a spiritual successor uh, to uh, Broken Sword in a lot of ways. And they have a number of different series. Uh, Yesterday, uh, according to this, they're currently working on an adaptation of Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. Oh my. Interesting. Yeah. So that's going to be coming out theoretically this year. And if that comes out this year, believe you me, we will be covering it. <laughs> I, I Shoot, I didn't know about that. I c- Color me intrigued. And I think it's also worth mentioning that 
you know, with the advent of Steam and GOG and other platforms like that, like it's worth going back and maybe trying out some of these classics that you missed. Absolutely. As well. They're, they're more accessible than ever. If any of these games, uh, the music caught your ear, maybe you should uh, take a look at them. Definitely. Play adventure game. By the way, I just want to say I'm not comparing Runaway to the Broken Sword series. I'm saying that because <laughs> <laughs> the Runaway is a very uh, polarizing title. The, whole, all three, all, the three of them are. I think they're great games. But uh, yeah, they're in the same narrative genre, same narrative genre of a uh, yeah, of a super competent woman and kind of a dumbass guy who are teaming <laughs> up. <laughs> and, you know, and also, if you want games about uh, super competent women and dumbass guys, try the Monkey Island series. Those are also <laughs> great. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's yeah, longstanding thing. I'm thinking I'm thinking back to April Ryan and uh, Longest Journey, too. Yeah. Come play adventure games. We have. Dynamics you might not see quite as often in video games and crazy royal families and film noir elements and pretty much anything and you want. And some ridiculously good music. Yes. Yes, exactly. And that's a perfect transition into any final thoughts on any of this music or adventure game music in general before I do housekeeping. Uh, I want to play an adventure game right now. Yes. <laughs> I, um, I knew the biggest struggle for this podcast for me would be to like kind of keep the sub subject on the music because I just want to talk about everything. I think it would be fun maybe to just like close with some some adventure game recommendations. Okay. Sure. Uh, and uh, so, so um, Jono, you mentioned the Wajid Eye uh, games, and I also would recommend those. Like basically every single thing that Wajid Eye has published is good. Even the really early stuff is good. And um, and I think generally their their output is a meaningful kind of a, a meaningful evolution of the classic adventure game genre. You know, very good writing, very good wor world building. They're they're good stories and good games. So I, I really recommend any game that they published. One one that I really want to recommend though, that this is um just kind of kind of obscure, but um there's this there's this company called The Game Kitchen. And uh, they're best known now for developing Blasphemous, which is kind of this uh, this Dark Souls Metroidvania game. But before that, they developed two seasons of episodic horror games called The Last Door. The Last Door Season 1, The Last Door Season 2. Each season is about the length of a regular adventure game. If you are a fan of literary horror, these games are just sublime. They're some of my favorite horror games that I have ever played. And um, and really, I, I think the thing that like just made me giddy about them is that I, I think a lot of people will recognize the horror as kind of Lovecraftian, but it also goes back deeper. It pulls a little bit of Blackwood, a little bit of Mackin, a little a little bit of these older authors that inspired Lovecraft, and it and it and it's just excellent pastiche. And, and some of and some of the episodes are just just these just masterpieces. Um, just they're fun to play. They're they're scary, they're atmospheric, and I just can't recommend The Last Door season one and season two enough. Wow, that's a strong endorsement. I'm intrigued. Although I'm gonna be honest, I sometimes don't do the best with uh horror games because I definitely react. Like when I try to play Fatal Frame, I like, <laughs> jump and then I start slamming the <laughs> picture button and waste all my film. So uh, well I will say that uh, the last door <laughs> is um you know one nice thing because I am also kind of one of those people. <laughs> um like occasionally my wife will want to watch a scary movie and I'll be like, yes, let's do it. And then it starts 
And like, you know, it'll hit you with the strings or, you know, whatever at the beginning. And then I'm like, oh, no, no, I no, I don't know why I agreed to this. Get me, get me out of here. <laughs> um, and then I'll plug my ears like that's my that's my trick for getting through scary movies is I plug my ears and then it makes my makes. And then Bethany like pulls them out of my ears because I'm supposed to be holding her when we do this. So Aww. but uh, but these games. These games, they're mostly about the atmosphere. They do occasionally hit you with a jump scare, but uh, it's also this very lo-fi um, pixel art aesthetic. And part of what makes it really interesting is how they still create this very dense atmosphere with sound and these very simplistic graphics. Recommendation. Well, I, my recommendations are kind of somewhat tied into what I picked for music, but I will also say stuff I haven't mentioned. The Longest Journey series that's an interesting one because it spans a great length of time. Um, it's also a series that started off as a very standard point-and-click inventory object, but kind of branched out um, and became episodic in the last game. Um, so it's really cool to see that evolution. Good characters, really fun setting with dual worlds. One of them is kind of more, more similar to our world based on science. And then there's also a magical world. Like the in- games that kind of have an interplay between technology and fantasy. They're a good one. I'm trying to think. I can I can recommend a few games uh, real quick. Uh, I think one of the best stories that I've played in the last few years was uh, Unavowed. Oh, that, yeah, yep. that's another good Unavowed one. was great. Two thumbs up for that one. It was one of the first. It was the second review I ever I, I wrote for the site. Great, great game. Um, if you are feeling like a cinematic experience uh, and you are a fan of the original film, I think Blade Runner is awesome. I think it's also recently available again. So check out Blade Runner. And this is a weird one, but and I think I might be doing something with this uh, on random at some point in the next year. Star Trek had some really amazing classic uh, Sierra-style adventure games in the 90s. And one of them, Star Trek Judgment Rights, is awesome. It has the original cast of the original series. Everyone's there um, playing themselves. And it's uh, the the uh, game is broken up into five different episodes, just like five episodes of the series. So it's the closest you're going to get to like new episodes of the original series featuring the original cast. It looks great for the 90s and uh, has some good classic adventure game uh mechanics so yeah i'd recommend star trek judgment rights holy huh, darn that's wild i've never heard of that that sounds awesome oh uh it's a sequel actually to star trek 25th anniversary which is it's it's the same idea five adventure game episodes starring the original cast using sierra style adventure game mechanics i recommend them they're pretty amazing yeah here's a, like one of the games like when i mentioned sam and max save the world is a miraculous game that it even exists a game that is tragically not miraculous is called star trek secret of vulcan fury which was a massive big budget 3d game with the original cast they recorded everything it was written by uh dc fontanas so like one of the original writers of the series all of the cast audio it was recorded and they canceled it and it's never been seen since it's one of the it's one of the holy grail advent classic uh canceled adventure games (sighs) Sadly, there there are a lot of stories like that. It was it was a casualty, I think, of the same mentality that killed Sam and Max Freelance Police. All right. Well, thanks for sharing those recommendations. Um, and I'm sure most, if not all, of those titles will have some really cool music to add to their atmospheres. All right. So to go into housekeeping items, um, I will just start by talking about what's coming up next for Rhythm. Uh, we have some series-related episodes coming up next. We've got 
a Final Fantasy XIV episode and a Nier episode coming up. So if you like music from either of those series, and really, who who doesn't like Soken and Keijo Okabe, um, check those out for sure. And remember to also, you know, if you like what you heard here, give a listen to our other podcasts. Uh, Random has been represented here, uh, but there's also Retro Encounter. If you have any feedback for us, be sure to email music at rpgfan.com. And remember to rate us, whatever your podcast listening method is. Um, comments, ratings, always helpful. And if you'd like to find any of us, the best way to find me is Discord. I'm EP Fire on Discord. And how about you, Adam? Uh, you cannot find me. <laughs> Actually, you can, but I, I, I don't have really any meaningful um, social media presence. But uh, if you want to reach out via email, you can find me at adaml at rpgfan.com. Great. How about you, Jonah? Uh, you can find me at Jono underscore Logan uh, on Twitter, or you can send me an email at j.logan at rpgfan.com or send some send some emails into uh, random and we'll uh, address some your questions or thoughts on the show. Wonderful. And uh, I know I mentioned once earlier, like we made references to some videos and some things. So be sure to check the show notes. You know, one, if you like the music, but two, we'll probably have a few extra things in there this time around. Now it's time to close out. We usually close out with a bonus track. So I'm excited to hear what are we listening to today, Adam? We are going to listen to one of the most famous tracks, certainly the most infamous track in adventure game history. This is Girl in the Tower. I knew it! <laughs> I don't even need to listen to it. <laughs> but I'll also just say, Girl in the Tower, reaching out. <laughs> You know, I will say that Sierra, Sierra, like, spent a lot of energy trying to cop Disney's style and um, and never quite got there except for this one song. This song sounds like one of the credit songs from a 90s Disney movie. You know, one of the awful credit songs. Yes. Yes, it does. And they tried to get it radio play, too. Yeah, they like they told people, like, call into your local radio station. Oh, Jane Jensen actually wrote the lyrics for it. Yes. Yes, she did. Oh, shoot. I didn't know. Yes, that. she did. Jane Jensen, one of the amazing, awesome writers who's done a bunch of different adventure games and also other books on the side. I knew that, but I also totally forgot she is responsible for those lyrics. I'm actually <laughs> I'm surprised that we actually got through this whole podcast um, without talking about Roberta Williams or Jane Jensen. So we'll save that for next time, I suppose. Yeah, I guess that we need to talk more about them. This is definitely not over. We did not go into detail on Sierra. Yeah. Well, on behalf of all of us, thanks for listening. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this rhythm encounter, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye, everybody. You seem so far away, and I just need to hear your voice. I just need to hear you say If you would have me go
had to do an R for Monkey Island. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. Oh no. Yeah. My R is going to be somewhere on the outtakes. I just know it. <laughs> <laughs> of course it is. Uh, all right. Well, I'm a pirate now.